Great. Cool. I actually think you did it great the first time. It was mainly me on the, okay. on the first time around. World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. We hope you're staying safe wherever you're listening. Ahead of today's episode, I just wanted to introduce today's interviewer and host. Lucy Chaw is going to be my co-host on the podcast from now on. She's been with us here at King's for several months. Lucy joined us initially remotely from South Africa and has managed to come here to the UK between lockdowns and is staying safe doing her isolating initially and then now working remotely. As I say, we're, we're recording these episodes uh, using our remote studio. So Lucy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. I'm thrilled to be here. And so, as I mentioned, you joined us remotely, but you're now here in the UK, safe and sound. Yes, well, thanks to modern technology and Zoom, Microsoft Teams, um, I was able to join the School of Global Affairs while in lockdown, still in South Africa. But I have subsequently arrived here in the UK as we uh, are now isolating in lockdown round two. Yeah, and it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to have you as a co-host because we're going to be doing lots of episodes in the coming weeks and we're going to be talking about lots of big issues. So it's fantastic to grow the team. Today is your first episode and you interviewed two researchers about their work on modern day slavery, something called Blood Bricks, which we're going to hear more about, and something called Unfree Labour, which one of the researchers notes. So can you tell us a little bit about today's episode? Yes, I spoke to Dr. Nithya Natarajan, who is an academic in our Department of International Development, and one of her research partners, Dr. Laurie Parsons from the Royal Holloway University. And they talked me through some of the findings of their three-year study into blood bricks in Cambodia. We spoke about how the impact of climate change and irresponsible lending in the form of microfinance loans converged to create the perfect conditions for unfree labor, uh, which is proliferating in Cambodia's brick kilns. Yeah, and I got to have a listen to the episode ahead of our listeners, ahead of it going out. And it is fascinating. It's fascinating research. And I think it really gets at lots of the issues that we talk about and lots of the research that we talk about on the podcast, in particular, this way in which issues converge, whether that's microfinancing, debt, economic inequality, or climate justice. So it's a really fantastic episode to kick off with. Really glad to have you on the team. And one final thing before, Lucy, you introduce today's episode, Nifya and Laurie are running a crowd justice fundraiser which will go towards investigating some of the companies linked to the blood bricks supply chain this is really vital important work so often on the podcast we hear about big global issues and challenges that are being faced around the world but in this case you can actually get involved so do listen to the episode go look at the research but also you can contribute financially but also you can contribute by campaigning and sharing some of the information on social media so You can do that by heading to www.crowdjustice.com forward slash case forward slash end dash blood bricks or go to the Project Blood Bricks website. That's www.projectbloodbricks.org. Okay, so Lucy, over to you to introduce your first episode. Thanks, James. Let's dive right in. This is Blood Bricks and Unfree Labour with Dr. Nithya Natarajan and Dr. Laurie Parsons. Nithya, Laurie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. 
Your most recent research forms part of a series of studies into the blood bricks industry in Cambodia. Could you start by briefly defining what you mean by blood bricks? Um, yeah, so uh, the idea of blood bricks is essentially a response to the idea of the blood diamond, which is, of course, something which was uh, a very prevalent idea starting in the 80s and 90s around the practice of diamond mining, uh, particularly in areas of the global south, where the very high value of the diamond as a commodity was contrasted with the um, extremely low value attributed to the lives involved in mining them. But what we wanted to bring across in this project by using this term blood brick was really to um, transport that idea of unequal value into the world of the mundane and understand how it doesn't have to be small, high value, special objects which are associated with this kind of very exploitative practice of labour which values human lives in such a relatively small way. Uh, and what we tried to get across was that actually by focusing on these very mundane objects, we could emphasise how everyday patterns of labour and everyday patterns of labour exploitation actually shore up vast edifices of value in the global economy and essentially how these small everyday practices are in many ways more significant than the exceptional idea of the, of the blood diamond. Your new paper tells the story of Kosal, a debt-bonded labourer who lives and works on a brick kiln with his wife and two of their children. They owe the kiln owner... 4,000 US dollars, but only make up to $2.50 a day, with which they have to cover their living and medical costs, as well as make debt repayments. It seems Cosell doubts that his family will ever be able to repay the loan and are likely to remain in this situation for life. Yet the decision to undertake debt-bonded labor was made by Cosell himself, and it seems to be an autonomous one. So why is Cosell's situation considered to be a form of modern slavery? This is really something that speaks to the core of uh, the aims of our project, Blood Bricks. Essentially, Kosal is, uh, is not an exceptional case by any means. She's, in fact, hugely typical in owing a huge loan to one or more MFIs and having no real realistic main means of being able to pay it back. Like many people, she has ultimately decided to um, enter into brickwork, seeing it as a last resort with no uh, further way to meet the interest payments which are mounting up every month. And the reason that she's emphasised in this paper and in some of the other case studies that we have brought out in the course of the project is that these kind of stories essentially give the lie to the idea of modern slavery as it was um, traditionally or at least as it was primarily thought of around the time that we began to embark upon this project. But what we really wanted to emphasise above all was that the act of bonding is really only the final part of a system whereby people like Kosal are induced into systems of exploitative labour. Uh, and in particular, her case and that of her family emphasises a number of key things which are uh, particularly prevalent in Cambodia, but also have a resonance in the global economy more broadly. And that is, of course, microfinance, which is a hugely problematic issue in Cambodia, and which is essentially so readily available that people can run up debts of a size that they couldn't possibly be expected to repay realistically. And then the other aspect that we were really keen to emphasise is the, the kind of ratcheting environmental precarity that people like Kosal find themselves in. Cambodia, like many areas of the global south, is of course a country which has a great reliance on subsistence agriculture. And as the environment is becoming increasingly capricious and less easy to predict, with predictability being really the key thing that a smallholder farmer needs for a sustainable livelihood, you see people increasingly relying on debt 
and increasingly being unable to make the sums of their traditional livelihoods work out for them. So really what we were trying to emphasise with these kind of case studies, stories like that of Kosal and her family, is that it's not just the question of being caught and enslaved by one kind of evil person, but rather that's the, the tip of the iceberg, with the iceberg being essentially a number of ratcheting pressures, both environmental and economic, which are increasingly pushing many, many people within the global south into the making decisions that they otherwise would never make. And why do you prefer to use the term unfree labour instead of modern slavery? We prefer this term for a number of reasons, and, and we are among a kind of larger group of scholars that advocate this. I mean, the first thing to say is that modern slavery is, is largely a term that emanates from the criminal justice side as well, because of the, the Modern Slavery Act um, introduced into the UK by Theresa May in 2015. And it has a kind of huge, very powerful let's say, non-governmental organizational industrial complex behind it, where, you know, who can argue, as, as Jens Lurker said, with the idea that we want to get rid of modern slavery, you know, who could possibly be against that? And, and it kind of comes with a, a powerful dichotomy of freedom versus unfreedom and all of the associations of the transatlantic slave trade and, and slavery before that. So it seems odd to be arguing against it. But the reason we do, and the reason we think it's important to, is the modern slavery definition or understanding of things like debt bondage leads us to a path where we see the perpetrators or the kind of main problems causing these instances of, of severely exploitative labor as being, as Laurie said, the direct employers. So in modern slavery kind of legal circles, the, the main aim is to basically criminalize the direct employer, the direct perpetrator of the person who has entered into debt bonded labor. And what that does is to erase or really, really obscure the wider structural issues that led someone into a form of debt bondage. And it kind of sees forms of debt bondage as exceptional, as if they're kind of one-offs. They're not part of the kind of mainstream capitalist labor market. There's something that happens in the shadows or outside formal regulation. And really what our story in Cambodia shows is that forms of unfree labor, which are very much caused by, you know, quote unquote, legal processes of, of precaritization, like microfinance, like agrarian capitalism. So people becoming precarious because of things that they have been actively encouraged to engage in, uh, or markets they've been encouraged to engage in by the wider development sector. They then enter into a form of work that's contributing to construction sector growth in Phnom Penh, which is really widely lauded. You know, Cam Cambodia and particularly Phnom Penh's ascent its rise into the skies through skyscrapers and, and, and foreign direct investment into these buildings is seen as a success story of Cambodia's development trajectory. So behind that success story, when we find debt-bonded brick workers, we can't really then continue to claim that this is a kind of exceptional labor relation caused outside the market and, and by one-off kind of evil perpetrators. We have to begin to understand how it's embedded in and reproduced by the actual patterns of mainstream kind of capitalist development. Your findings suggest that in the Cambodian context, microfinancing, climate change and wider political economy factors converge to create a system in which debt bondage is often seen as the only option for rural families. How so? Again, just building on what Laurie said before, I think the key here is that we, when you, when you see instances of debt bondage, you often see them as linked to forms of trafficking. So kind of direct coercion by middlemen usually put, you know, compelling or forcing people into forms of labor exploitation that they wouldn't otherwise enter into. And really what we saw 
was on the face of it at least indebted rural villagers who were highly indebted often to microfinance institutions most often to microfinance institutions choosing to swap the um, unsustainable debt load of what they owed to the microfinance institution for a debt bond and debt bondage then on the brick kiln to try and pay off that debt bond and that choice is is one that is constrained as Laurie said one that kind of shows a a, a lack of other choices, a lack of other options. But however, it is important to see in this instance that debt bondage, something that is seen as a, at least a better alternative to unsustainable debt, largely because microfinancing in many, many instances that we looked at uses people's land, the homeland that they live on, the, house, the land on which their house sits on as a form of collateral. And, and then sometimes they're petty, you know, very, very small amounts of agricultural land. So the, the kind of risk of one faulty payment to the microfinance lender is massive. And so the choice then to swap a microfinance debt for debt bondage means holding on to your, your natal land, your land in your home village, and, and spending some time in, in really unfree and exploitative labor conditions to hold on to that, that kind of link to your home village. And so it is a choice, but it's a choice where, you know, there are very few choices and, and forms of structural constraints have been laid upon people's ability to, to choose their path forward. So predatory lending is an increasingly common occurrence in both developing and developed nations. How does Cambodia's microfinancing system compare? Well, um, the first thing to say is, of course, this is um, a, a practice and a kind of example that we bring in Blood Bricks and in the particular paper, which is intended to speak to a wider problem. Certainly, this is not in any way unique to Cambodia, and that's really part of the main point that we wish to make. However, having said that, Cambodia is nevertheless an exceptional site when it comes to microfinance. Depending on how you measure it, Cambodia is either one of the very most per capita microfinance indebted countries in the world, or it is the most. So the extent to which microfinance has penetrated the country and really defines the kind of household economy and wider economy is uh, unprecedented in many ways. Of course, not only is, is microfinance itself a relatively common practice, but especially in Cambodia, which was in such a situation of um, exclusion from the global economy really up till the mid-90s, it's incredible to think the extent to which microfinance has achieved its penetration in such a relatively short time. So we're seeing practices which are in many ways common, but nevertheless are exceptional in their intensity as we view them in Cambodia. So Nithya, you mentioned earlier that all of this is happening amidst a building boom in Phnom Penh. Cambodia's economic growth strategy has been lauded as a great success, in part because of the way it has embraced foreign direct investment but you've recognised that FDI might actually be problematic. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of link the FDI point to Laurie's point on microfinance, I think this one of the wider messages, at least from the Cambodian growth story, that our, our research reveals is that these forms of opening up of markets, these forms of, of deregulating financial capital, global capital, to enter into an economy like Cambodia, are seen often as you know, key development strategies, as win-win strategies that can only ratchet up success and financial inclusion for the most marginal. And there is very little engagement in those kinds of literatures and those kinds of policy circles with how if you deregulate something like microfinance or FDI, you end up allowing logics of profit making to really materially alter the lives of people every day. 
So to compare then, FDI and, and microfinance both have seen deregulation. So it's been much easier to have foreign investors invest in directly into to building projects or through kind of shell companies or something else we've seen into some of the buildings in Phnom Penh. And in the same instance, microfinance has gone from being a not-for-profit state-backed or UN, actually UN development program backed uh, entity to a commercial bank backed for-profit sector. And in both instances, what that's meant on the ground is the search for profit, for new customers, for cheaper ways to make money has had profound effects on people's lives. So in microfinance, that means loan amounts, the collateral requirements for loans, interest rates have all been loosened and deregulated. So people who really shouldn't be offered large amounts of microfinance are being offered it. And so riskier and riskier lenders are being brought into the system and the risk is really on them because their homestead land is their collateral. And then in terms of FDI, this drive for cheap bricks has really led to the boom of the brick kiln sector and the boom then of forms of debt bondage in the brick kiln sector because kiln owners are able to make really high profits off these really exploitative labor conditions on the kilns, off the fact that they pay workers piece rate wages, but actually sell bricks, you know, even though they are sold for kind of cheap amounts, for amounts that don't reflect that labor cost, and they can kind of make a huge profit off the back of that. So there are problematic ways in which the opening up of foreign finance can alter labor relations on the ground that both these kind of stories tell. If I could just uh, reflect really on the idea of Cambodia as a success, I think it's important to note that this is not just something that we uh, attribute it to in a general sense, but this is necessary in order to place Cambodia within the context of the enormous achievements in terms of its uh, economic growth within the last 25 years. Because Cambodia has been, in many ways, the golden child of development ever since the, the 90s and ever since its opening up economically. The development of its garment industry has seen uh, it become one of the fastest growing countries in the world for over two decades, since the turn of the new millennium two decades ago. It's averaged the sixth fastest growing country in the world. And coming from such a low base and being a post-war environment, as you all know, a country which emerged from the Khmer Rouge only a few decades before that. And this was seen as so surprising and so um, such an incredible development. Indeed, such a perfect example of the capacity of international development to achieve goals in the, uh, in the global south, that it was essentially hailed quite literally as a development miracle. And this idea of Cambodia as being this incredible uh, miracle of economic growth is something that we are seeking not necessarily to completely undermine, but to emphasize the hidden costs involved in that huge process of growth. This has essentially been um, a really quite incredible transformative story in an economic basis, but there is an awful lot that is hidden within those processes of change. So off the back of that, Sustainable Development Goal 8 encourages sustained, inclusive and sustainable economic growth, full and productive employment and decent work for all. It also encourages access to financial services. So while the United Nations and many international organizations are working towards this goal, your research suggests that economic growth, access to finance and decent work don't necessarily go hand in hand. Could you expand on the contradictions contained in this goal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Laurie said a lot of it in what he just said. The problem with the goal fundamentally is that by explicitly linking economic growth with decent work, it implicitly and explicitly suggests that the path to getting a decent job or, or decent work is through economic growth. And in fact, our research, you know, wider research beyond ours, but certainly ours shows that the opposite is true in this specific instance where 
an instance of boom in, in the construction sector, which is one of the three largest sectors contributing to the national growth story in Cambodia, the three largest contributors to growth in the, in the last five years, is actually concealing and masking incredibly exploitative labor relations, which drive the high profits in that sector. So there is a direct link here between the fact that debt bondage enables the construction of very, very cheap bricks, and the fact that profits from investments in the construction sector in Cambodia reap high returns. So the exploitative labor relations drive profits directly. And to not see that link or not to not be able to kind of make that link through goal eight is a real, real problem because you're not then able to, to show how actually a drive towards economic growth and the policy arena that goes with that, for example, deregulating FDI in the construction sector can in fact lead to exploitative labor practices and indecent work. And then the, sec the kind of second part of that financial inclusion is also very much part of our story in that the deregulation of microfinance has, has rendered households unsustainably indebted. And when you are unsustainably indebted, and as our research shows, and, and research shows again and again beyond Cambodia and in Cambodia, much of the repayment of microfinance loans comes from waged work not from petty enterprise, as we are kind of initially led to believe by a lot of the, the mainstream development literature. So when you are highly indebted, at risk of losing your house, your ability to access decent work on the labor market is severely eroded. In fact, your bargaining power in the labor market is very weak. You are kind of forced and compelled to take on a job as quickly as possible, which puts you in the kind of position where something like brickwork, particularly because it comes with a with an advanced check, you know, with an advanced amount of money that allows you to pay back your loan, brickwork appeals to people in that very weak position in the labor market. And you know, for the brick sector, brickwork is very unappealing. It requires long, sustained periods of work that's very grueling, creates health degradation in terms of respiratory illness and bodily exhaustion. And it also has no protective equipment and, and requires people living on the kiln site. So they really look for and relish the opportunity to employ people at the kind of weaker end of bargaining power in the labor in the labor market. So again, you have there a direct link between unregulated, unbridled financial inclusion and indecent work. And so again, the, the goal's inability to pull those different things apart and really say, you know, decent work needs its own goal outside of economic growth, outside of financial inclusion is a failing and, and makes the goal unable to address how these things can cause uh, indecent work. And looking to the UK, our Modern Slavery Act requires large businesses to report on how they prevent modern slavery. Surely this is a positive development. It is and it isn't in that arguably there wasn't a piece of legislation that was quite as comprehensive as this one before. However, I mean, we join in, in wider currents in the legal community in criticising the Act because it basically lets businesses get away with, with a lot. Firstly, it has incredibly weak provisions to do anything about a British or so UK business with modern slavery found in its supply chains overseas. So an example could be in, in terms of investments that we found in our own, in our own research that British um, and European and American businesses were investing through shell companies and directly in buildings in Phnom Penh made using blood bricks. And the Modern Slavery Act can't do anything to address that or anything to even compel these companies to take stock of their supply chains. And even if the relationship were more direct, if there were forms of direct employment overseas, the Modern Slavery Act is incredibly weak in being able to bring legislation against those instances. And then the other major issue is that the Modern Slavery Act 
allows companies to basically submit a statement to say we haven't taken any steps towards addressing or, or kind of even doing due diligence on the instances of modern slavery in our supply chain and submitting that report which says we haven't done anything so this is um, article 54 4b in the modern slavery act um, means that companies can get away with doing very little and still remaining compliant to the act which really seems to kind of fly in the face of the act and and suggests it's much weaker than it kind of purports to be and there are questions as to whether it even fulfills the obligations it's required to fulfill in terms of matching european legislation and matching the kind of un level legislation that the act is designed to make sure that the british government adheres to so yeah there are wider questions about this act that's being kind of rethought at the moment particularly as we potentially or, or you know whenever we leave the eu there's also a fundamental problem from my point of view with the act which is that it fails to account for the extent to which supply chains are incredibly complex and incredibly global um it's very difficult really to say where supply chain stops and yet what the modern slavery act does is essentially to allow companies to define their own supply chains to a significant extent and that's actually something that we've seen not only in relation to modern slavery but also of course in relation to things like carbon emissions and environmental policy of companies in recent years of course you simply choose the elements of the supply chain which are cleanest and most direct and then ignore the kind of extended elements of the supply chain which are perhaps to a larger extent uh, removed from the the company submitting to the modern slavery act and so what we kind of have tried to do in this project is to emphasize that although companies may believe their supply chains to be clean in a direct way in terms of modern slavery actually there's a huge kind of extended tail to many supply chains which companies don't see themselves as responsible for but that's another element we see is important in terms of focusing on those bricks because they're so ubiquitous you can't you always can't have overseas business or business connections or overseas franchises or holdings without having the brick and as long as you see that fundamental element of uh, of construction as being something which global companies are responsible for then um you're really conceptually massively expanding the idea of responsibility within supply chains in a way that the modern slavery act just doesn't do So what policy changes need to be made in order to prevent the proliferation of unfree labor? I mean this is a huge question <laughs> so we couldn't even begin to answer it more widely. I'd say in relation to our case and I'm I'm Laurie will have more to say on this I'm sure as well. One of the key findings that this paper this this development and change paper really picks up on and is something that Laurie and I are both working on in a new project entitled Depleted by Debt funded by GCRF is the link between the deregulation of the microfinance sector and unfree labor and the fact that microfinance has placed people who are experiencing firsthand the climate crisis the impacts of the climate crisis the ways in which that kind of renders insecurity embedded in their in their everyday life and everyday reproduction how microfinance is really responsible in many ways for the precarious situation many households find themselves in in terms of income and how that has specifically happened because of the kind of stripping back of the microfinance sector's protections or or regulatory systems to allow a, a very much for profit very hungry microfinance predatory microfinance sector to prevail in the Cambodian case so we would say regulations on things like loan amount loan type number of loans a household can have interest rate now that came in a few years ago but our initial research reveals that it's it's not necessarily being implemented uniformly and really a kind of broader regulation again of the microfinance sector and of ownership structures within it so um the current microfinance companies in Cambodia the largest ones are owned by commercial entities in in other countries and 
that makes implementing of domestic regulation a little bit harder for the National Bank of Cambodia. So having a broader regulatory overhaul of microfinance would be a key area. And then the second one I would say, and this is something, again, that perhaps Laurie could speak more to, is working with the labour movement in Cambodia and ensuring that brick workers are recognised, that they are part of a broader push in the country to move towards having a minimum wage and ensuring that the peace rate system of wages, which is deeply, deeply exploitative, is eradicated and also separating the role of the brick kiln owner as someone who lends them money from someone who pays them for fair wages for the work they do. Because right now, the merging of those roles means that the brick kiln owner is not incentivized to pay them fair wages for the work they do because they want to kind of hold them captive to enable them to continue doing the work. Yeah, um, I think just just picking up on some of those points about microfinance in particular, absolutely, absolutely necessary to regulate as quickly as possible the use and expansion of microfinance in Cambodia, which is already one of the highest penetrations in the world, but which is more worryingly than that, expanding at a very fast rate, even from the base of being, as I say, the highest penetration in the world. The key problem here is that microfinance began life as a, a third sector initiative but it has not been that for a long time, since around the turn of the millennium, at least 20 years ago, MFIs in Cambodia began to transition to be, towards being private entities. And as that has accelerated, now the vast majority of them are private. And we see these MFIs being sold and resold in such a way that the expectation on the buyer is that they will be able to achieve uh, higher profits in the future. So beyond just regulating what they do in the short term, there really has to be a longer term conversation about deflating the microfinance bubble as it currently exists in Cambodia. Because this is a huge problem for a country which is, for any rational observer in a situation where this debt bubble could burst at any moment. And of course, as we've seen with COVID-19, these kind of shocks to the global economy are present at any given time. It hasn't apparently burst just now because um, people like Casal, people like um, ordinary farmers in rural areas are essentially bearing the brunt of this huge debt repayment. And there's a widespread policy on the part of microfinance institutes to never allow defaults to occur because that makes it look bad to investors. It looks as if we are in this bubble. So this is um, what our colleague Milford Bateman calls the practice of extend and pretend, whereby many of these MFIs are simply extending loans and offering longer and longer payment terms, which makes it look like people aren't defaulting. But in fact, they are. So the deflation of the microfinance sector is one massive element that needs to be addressed. And beyond that, definitely the labour sector and this implementation of a minimum wage. There are There is precedent for a minimum wage in Cambodia. It's something that's very common in the garment industry. Uh, it's ubiquitous in the garment industry, in fact, and there are ongoing conversations about expanding that. Ways in which to improve this, of course, the idea of unionisation. There are efforts to bring brick workers into some kind of organised union, and the, build, the Building Workers Trade Union of Cambodia is in the process of attempting to do this. However... On the downside, what we see is that unfortunately all of this is happening now in what is an increasingly illiberal context in Cambodia. The political situation in Cambodia has changed an awful lot from uh, even 10 years ago or five years ago when there was a functioning opposition and a relatively powerful union movement. We've now seen many steps politically to uh, not only outlaw the opposition, but also to crack down on unions hugely to the extent that they're really shells of what they were able to previously do. So what we're advocating here is a policy which advocates much greater labour rights within an environment which is going in completely opposite direction. Mm. It's hugely problematic 
we see perhaps one of the approaches that may be fruitful is to place a greater onus on the, on companies themselves thinking about investing in Cambodia to really have an independently observed supply chain which places an onus on them to have responsibility in every aspect of their supply chain so that anybody building a building or using Cambodian bricks will have to have some kind of due diligence on the labour conditions uh, around which those bricks were produced. But it's, um, there's any number of different policy approaches which are necessary. Worth noting, unfortunately, it's, it's a difficult environment in which to enact them. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about and to work towards. As we close, can you report on any good news arising from the findings of your research? I, I wouldn't call it good news necessarily, but it's news, I guess, which is that we, Laurie, myself, the principal investigator of our project, Professor Catherine Brickell, um, along with legal teams across barristers' chambers and solicitors' firms, are working together on a, currently it's a, it's a fundraising campaign uh, based at Crowd Justice, and, and I believe we can put that into the, the notes of this podcast. And it basically focuses on trying to think about the forms of legislative uh, redress we can use to highlight the investment of European and potentially, but not yet, American investors in these buildings in Phnom Penh using blood bricks. So the kind of the key aim at the moment is to submit a petition to the UN uh, Working Group on Business and Human Rights. And that would name and shame some of the investors in, in these buildings and, and do that using the kind of tool of, of national legislation on modern slavery in their respective countries or at the European level. And by doing that, there's kind of significant examples in case law in the past to show that there is change to be to be made, particularly because companies face poor press and, and that scares shareholders and investors and so on. But also in terms of potentially then using that to think about how we, we highlight some of the gaps in the in the modern slavery act. But there are other kind of legal avenues possible. And at this stage, we're simply um, fundraising to try and undertake some kind of deeper investigation in country to be able to make that happen. And uh, just a, as a, a final point, one thing that I think we're really pleased with in, in terms of this project is that it really has brought the issue of bricks and brick production into focus, certainly in Cambodia. You know, the government, despite all of the, the wider political constraints, are now focusing on this. They have a working group. Um, in relation to conditions of brickwork. We've also seen some bricks put on the US watch list in terms of in terms of their the labor conditions in which they're produced. So this is now an issue which is on the map. Whether or not that will result in the future in tangible good news, we very much hope so. But currently it's a work in progress. Fantastic. Well Laurie Nithia, thank you for taking the time to unpack some of your research with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman with editing from Rachel Waugh.